Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we turn to microbiology to help tackle some macro-global problems. Now what can we learn from enzymes or bacteria, and how can they help us address some of the biggest challenges facing the world today, whether that be clean production of hydrogen for hydrogen fuel cells in vehicles, or even ways to cut down on CO2 emissions in our atmosphere by using bacteria to chew it all up. This week we find out some ways microbiology can help solve climate problems. Now the world is facing some pretty big challenges, especially when it comes to our climate. And finding a way to reduce our CO2 emissions is a global challenge that scientists from many different disciplines are trying to work on. But this week we're going to focus initially on one such set of researchers who are turning to some of the smallest living organisms in the planet to actually help tackle one of the largest challenges facing our planet. And that is by using bacteria and making them chew up CO2 and spit out healthy oxygen. Now, you may have known about this in the first place because it's exactly that process that led to the formation of life on Earth as we know it today, billions and billions of years ago. When Earth's atmosphere was pretty toxic, it was thanks to algae and other microbes that enabled us to have all that oxygen and nitrogen that we need to breathe and survive. But these researchers are trying to find a better way to actually create synthetic bacteria and sort of flip the script on a way a common bacteria that's easy to produce actually works. Turn it from having one food source to another. And researchers from the Weizmann Institute of Science from Israel have recently published in the journal Cell a novel approach which they help will help in change our understanding of the way in which certain types of bacteria work and maybe one day find a way to turn these to bacteria that can help fixate carbon and take that CO2 out of the atmosphere. Now all life on the planet can be pretty much divided into two groups, autotrophs and heterotrophs. Now autotrophs are living things that are able to convert something around them into their own food or fuel to survive. Typically this is using things like water and sunlight to produce their own food example is converting CO2 into biomass. The way plants convert light and carbon dioxide into all of the sugars and energy that they need through photosynthesis. That's an example of an autotroph. The rest, heterotrophs, consume organic compounds. These things, these sugars and all that produced by, say, plants, and use it to fuel themselves. That's like us, for example, or many animals that you'll be familiar with. And this divide between autotrophs and heterotrophs is a big one in biology. It also is about understanding the way in which energy is stored and produced. Now, autotrophs are pretty fantastic because they can sort of generate sustainably their own food from their environment. But the problem has been in synthetic biology, that is biology where we create our own organisms or modify existing ones to get them to do a job, is to try and actually produce an autotroph type model or autotroph organism. And that is because it can be harder to engineer those. And so we try to use our heterograph, sort of more common organisms as a starting point and trying to turn them into autotroph is incredibly difficult. In fact, the actual common type of workhorse of all biotechnology is E. coli. Now, E. coli bacteria you may be familiar with is leading to some pretty devastating illnesses, but it's actually used a lot in microbiology and nanotechnology because, well, you can actually strip it out, gut it, and turn it into a pretty useful machine. 
more or less. So E. coli forms a workhorse of all of this synthetic biology. But the problem is E. coli isn't autotroph. It's actually a heterotroph, and that means it needs to chew or chomp down or something to get its energy. Now, the other good advantage of E. coli is actually it's pretty easy to synthesize, edit, and reproduce. We call this kind of like industrial scale production. And this is actually pretty good for us. The problem is when we try to industrial scale produce bacteria to convert CO2, we haven't really found a good way to produce them automatically or produce them as part of a large scale process. So all other attempts to find auto, what are called autocatalytic CO2 fixation cycles, especially using heterotrophs, which are these things that require energy, have kind of failed. So the researchers from the Weissmann Institute actually tried to look for a whole new way to approach this. What they did is they rewired and re-engineered the E. coli, and they turned them from heterotrophs into autotrophs. That is, they turned the E. coli from relying an external food source to consume to be able to produce their own food source. And in fact, the food source that they would rely on was CO2. Now that makes a pretty handy tool because now we could large scale produce this CO2 consuming bacteria. But it's not quite as simple as that. The way in which the research worked is that the E. coli actually harvests energy from formate. Now formate, now formate is an anion which is derived from formic acid, but basically it involves CH and O2 basically in different different combinations or arrangements. So think about it more like CO2 with some hydrogen on it. Now, formic acid or formate is a useful food source, but you can actually you have to produce the formate in the first place. But the good news about formate is you can actually produce it using chemical electric processes. And that means you can actually charge and have some sort of electric induced process. So it doesn't require anything else but the raw materials. And that you could actually power with renewable energy. So, hey, we now have a sustainable approach here. But it also requires some enzymes to sort of adapt and change the way the E. coli worked. And that's actually what these researchers do. They evolved these E. coli over a period of 300 days in this certain type of sugar xylose in order to get them to stop trying to eat food, but rather learn how to produce their own food. And that was a pretty interesting process in the first place. They basically sat these E. coli in formate and 10% CO2 atmosphere, and then they started to dump in these really limited supply of sugar xylose. So instead of having a food source around, though it was present in a small amount, they needed to learn how to eat something else or survive. And they kind of evolved these E. coli by restricting their food sources and providing them plenty of formate and CO2 and letting the evolutionary process take hold. And so they made the conditions really hard. They sort of starved them a little bit of normal traditional food sources. And the E. coli responded as an incredibly resistant bacteria does by chowing down on a different food source, learning how to make good of the scenario that it has. And that's where it sort of became then able to become an autotroph and producing the food it needs from the environment around it. And this is pretty much the first time any researcher has successfully transformed a bacterium's mode of growth. And it's even more astounding when you think about it in the, what they've actually done. E. coli is a bacteria that typically lives in your gut, and they managed to turn that into something that can be like a plant, just through the right coaxing and the right setup and a bit of modification. 
And that's pretty incredible when you think about it like that. Now, of course, one major limitation of this study is that the consumption of formate by bacteria currently releases more CO2 than is consumed through the carbon fixation process. So that clearly is a big downside. The net CO2 emission at the moment is actually positive rather than negative. So it's not actually helping with CO2 overall. But as a proving concept, it's actually a pretty good one. And in fact, if you switch to more renewable sources of electricity generation for the formic acid creation process, then it would also be possible to reduce the CO2 release problem in the first place. Now, as a concept, this is pretty fascinating. As a piece of science, a way to turn a gut bacteria into something that's able to completely change the way it works and then consume CO2 through the environment around it in the atmosphere is actually an amazing piece of genetic engineering and microbiology. But it's a powerful proof of concept that also opens up new ways to engineer bacteria to transform products we regard as waste into fuel or food or compounds that we may need for other processes. This is a great way to basically show that it is possible to convert a bacteria, to teach an old dog new tricks and fundamentally change the way they work, but not change the way that they're produced or operate. Which means that instead of having to invent from scratch a whole new piece of microbiology, we can adapt one that's already there to make it more useful for us. Now, this doesn't mean tomorrow you can go out and buy some CO2 chomping E. coli, but it does show the pathways there to get CO2 fixating microbes to actually help us reduce our CO2 emissions. Now, this is some great work from the Weissman Institute for Science, published in the journal Cell. Taking CO2 out of the atmosphere is certainly one way to cut down CO2 emissions, but another way is to eliminate the source of the CO2 emissions entirely. Now, of course, a big target is transport, and the rise of electric vehicles has seen more and more vehicles switch from internal combustion engines to ones that rely on batteries. Now, batteries as well can have a large carbon footprint because you need to mine an awful lot of rare earth metals and do a lot of large processes to produce those batteries in the first place. So again, the net carbon contribution of batteries can be a little bit misleading. The running costs are certainly less carbon intensive, but the production costs can be pretty bad. So another alternative is hydrogen fuel cells. And hydrogen fuel cells involve a pretty interesting process. Basically, the concept is you take hydrogen, the hydrogen gas, and you take some fresh air, and by putting them together in a certain process, you can actually produce two things, electricity and water. Now, that seems like a pretty good trade, because basically, you take the hydrogen in your tank, you take some air from the atmosphere around you, you combine the two together, and you get electricity, which you can use to, say, power a car. And so instead of relying on batteries, hydrogen fuel cells can promise a pretty good way to actually produce the electricity you need on the fly. Now, the problem with hydrogen fuel cells is they aren't efficient as purely just a stored battery. A normal combustion engine takes about the liquid fuel and turns it into motion, kinetic energy, but it's about 20%, 25% may be efficient. A fuel cell, by comparison, turns hydrogen 
and the ambient air into kinetic energy at around 60% efficiency. Now that's a big jump, but a battery is obviously much more efficient than that, but you had to get the energy into the battery in the first place. So fuel cells have been promising to be a pretty good new way to actually power vehicles. But the issue with fuel cells is generating the hydrogen, the fuel itself, in a cost-effective manner or in a sustainable manner. Now, hydrogen can be produced by what's called electrolysis, basically by using electricity to split water into two parts, hydrogen and oxygen. Now, the good news is if you do that with renewable energy, you can make production of your fuel in almost a carbon neutral act. That is pretty amazing. And remember, the fuel cell itself produces water as a byproduct, so you can effectively recycle that water and turn it back into a fuel cell later, just by, again, adding more electricity. The real problem with this is, scaling electrolysis is incredibly difficult, because it's around 2% of the 600 billion cubic metres of hydrogen manufactured each year is produced by water electrolysis. The rest, 98% of that hydrogen, is produced from natural gas. And when you produce hydrogen from natural gas, well, you have the byproduct of carbon dioxide. So again, this is where the full life cycle becomes a tricky and challenging question. But what if there was a more renewable way to produce hydrogen gas? Well, if it could do that, then the production of hydrogen and thus hydrogen fuel cells would become a lot greener. And scientists from University of California and University of Illinois Champaign are looking at ways to use, instead of electrolysis, a biologically driven process to create this green fuel of hydrogen. And they've published their findings in the Proceeding of National Academy of Sciences journal. Now, like in the case before where we talked about biologically synthesized, what they're trying to do is use biological enzymes called hydrogenase, which is nature's own machinery for making and burning hydrogen gas. And by taking these enzymes and finding a good way to produce them efficiently, you could actually use biological sources to produce hydrogen for you, rather than relying on stripping it out of natural gas. Now these enzymes come from two varieties. They normally come from iron or nickel iron, and they're the main elements responsible for producing it. And it's actually kind of a complex piece of machinery. There's not just one iron, it's actually iron iron or nickel iron in different arrangements. And there's actually different kinds of active sites within the enzyme. And the enzyme effectively assembles different outputs. Now these sites in the enzyme have 10 different parts, or at least that was the theory that they understood how this enzyme worked. Four carbon monoxide molecules, two cyanide ions, two iron ions, and two groups of a sulfur containing amino acid called cysteine. But when they started to analyze and try to build and replicate this process, they found it was a lot more complicated than that. In fact, the enzyme's engine, the thing producing all this hydrogen, was actually composed of two identical groups containing five chemicals. It's more carbon monoxide molecules, one cyanide ion, one iron ion, and one cysteine group. And they form this tightly bonded unit that sort of works chugging along as an engine producing hydrogen from the fuel around it. But actually, it's not just one working on its own, it's two. So that gives it 10 total parts, two different little machines working as part of one larger machine inside this enzyme. But when they synthesized this enzyme again, they actually found it even more missing some key elements. 
because they compared their synthesized one to the real one and they actually said, well, hang on, there's actually a bit missing. There's a part of their engine that they weren't synthesizing in their lab and thus the engine wasn't able to work and produce hydrogen. So to try and figure out what they were missing, they had to try and dig through all different types of ionide and hydrogenase enzymes to try and find what was so different that they'd have overlooked in their study. And it shows that we really have a big hole in our understanding. Yes, we have the idea that there's enzymes out there that can produce hydrogen gas, but the problem is the mechanisms that nature has in place to do this using existing enzymes is so complex that scientists themselves are still trying to reverse engineer and piece together the process. Now, it's as the lead author said, it's one thing to envision using real enzyme to produce hydrogen gas, but it's far more powerful to understand its makeup well enough to be able to reproduce it, not just in a lab, but on scale. And that goes to show the real complexity of a lot of the natural mechanical systems that we have. These molecular machines are able to do great things like turn one material into another, but if we don't understand fundamentally how they work, it can be a bit like trying to build your own car by staring at pictures on the internet. Now you might get the outside shape right, you might even get the fact that it needs an engine, but you might be missing all the little bits inside that make it work just so. And that's what these scientists are trying to do. They're trying to reproduce, modify and create their own version of this enzyme synthetically. But it's not quite as simple as it first appears, and that is the real challenge of synthetic biology. But it does show the potential for using these kind of enzymes to produce hydrogen on a much more cleaner scale. And it would enable us to have another way to produce hydrogen that doesn't rely on electrolysis, that might be more easier to scale. Because if we could grow and synthesize these enzymes, then they could just be sitting there in a big vat producing hydrogen for a long time, almost like farming. And that is really what the scientists are trying to move towards. But we have a long way still to go. And studies like this are important stepping stones in that process. And again, this doesn't mean today we're going to have hydrogen fuel cells everywhere. And it doesn't mean that we even have a good way of producing hydrogen via enzymes. But it shows a pathway, a way to progress forward and hope that we could get to there in the future. And this is some great work published in the journal Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences from University of Illinois Researchers and University of, and University of California, Davis. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From CO2 eating bacterium to molecular machines producing hydrogen through the complicated use of enzymes. This week we found out about ways to tackle climate problems using microbiology. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.